the race car shopping cart. Race car shopping cart. If you are a parent or if you have had a small child, you know when you go to the grocery store about the kid's shopping cart. I think we have a picture of one, maybe, maybe not. But if you have small children, this is a game changer. This, to shopping, this is like the iPad is to the long journey, the long car ride. If you know this, as a small, as, as a family, this is a great tool for you so your kids don't run around in the grocery store and take all the stuff and there's this illusion, right? There's an illusion to this cart. All the young kids are in there, so they're, they're the ones that are on this cart. But there's an illusion to it. They're excited because they have control, that they have a steering wheel in which they can control and they can think that they are steering the cart. It's a game changer. However, there comes a day, doesn't there? There comes a day where your child, and if they're strong-willed, they probably realize this really early on in this process, or maybe it takes them a few years. I don't know what it was like for your kid, but at some point, the illusion wears off, and they realize that they're not steering the shopping cart. And then all the flavor is rolled off. Well, life is often like that. We often think that we are really steering this thing called life. And if 2020 hasn't done anything else for us, it has reminded us that we are not in control. What is your currencies? What are the currencies that drive you? Is control one of those currencies? What do you really control about your life? What are you not able to control? And how's that working out for you in 2020? How much energy do you take to try to control outcomes and life and family and job? As we come to the end of Genesis this morning, we're reminded of what we saw in the very beginning of Genesis as well, that it is God who controls. It is God who rules, and we flourish, and we're most satisfied when we submit to his loving, sovereign rule. We've not only learned that God rules all things and controls all things, in the last few weeks we've actually learned that he also overrules. He also overrules the things that people do. And today as we wrap up the life of Joseph and the book of Genesis, God is still the boss. God is still in control and particularly we're going to see this morning that he is in control of life and death. How do we live and how do we die is the question in Genesis chapter 49 and 50. See, you're going to see the death of Jacob. You're going to see the death of Joseph. You're going to see the hope and the faith in which they die, but you're also going to see God's transforming assurance in his sovereignty in life that even through the darkest of days that we can trust and be assured in the sovereignty that he brings to life, that he is still in control. That's a lesson that we need to learn. What's interesting about the last chapter of the book of Genesis and all the chapters of Genesis, if you remember, Moses, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is writing. He's writing to who? Remember who Moses is, or who Genesis is addressed to? It's addressed to the audience of the people of Israel who have left Egypt. They've left the 400 years. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert and they're about to come back into the promised land, this land that God had promised them. So there's some great lessons for them to learn that we will also draw out as well and apply to our lives. How do we live and how do we die? 
Turn with me to the end of Genesis chapter 49. There's a few Bibles on the end of your rows if you want one. Um, Page 43 in that Bible at the end of your row. And I want to catch you up. As you turn there, I want to catch you up. We've been studying really the last five weeks leading up to this week the life of Joseph. And we've seen his trouble. We've seen him be a man of integrity and forgiveness. We've seen God's providence, which we use the imagery of a rudder of a ship to define God's providence. It's a big theological word that God is actually directing the ship of life. We might not see it, but he's directing all things in his providence and in his sovereignty. And so this is, these are the big themes of what you've seen in Joseph's lives, but he's gone down. He's gone down to Egypt. He's gone down to Potiphar's prison. He's forgotten in that prison, and then he's raised up to the pinnacle of Egypt, to Pharaoh's right hand. He has the power of Egypt at his fingertips because he interprets this dream that would call for a famine, that God summoned a famine, Psalm 105, and God summoned a famine to deliver his people, to grow his people, not in the promised land, but in Egypt. And he meets his brothers. His brothers come because they don't have any food from the land of Canaan. And they come, and they ask him, and they don't know it's him, and they ask him for food, and he puts them through a series of tests. And then last week we saw him reveal himself to his brothers. We saw that when people confess and repent from their sins and people forgive those people, then you have this full reconciliation with one another. And we drew out what that looked like in their lives, that not only were they forgiven, but there was favor and blessing that was given to them, even in Egypt. And then we fast forward today to the end of the story of Genesis. And Jacob has come to Egypt. He's been reunited with his son Joseph. And they've worked their way through this famine where the whole earth and the whole world is needing food. And you come to the end of Jacob's life and he blesses his sons, prophetically blesses his sons and he's at the end of his life. And here we get to Genesis, the end of chapter 49. Pick it up with me there. And this is what God's word says in verse 29 of chapter 49. I am to be gathered to my people. This is Jacob speaking to his sons. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite and the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. That's where they buried Isaac and Abraham and Sarah. This is the family cemetery in verse 33. Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. A couple of notes about those verses that we just read. He said he was gathered to his people. This is another phrase to just say he was going to die, but it was more than that, right? Being gathered to your people implies life after death. And so Jacob believes that even though he will die, he will surely live, that he'll be gathered to his people. And where does he want to be buried? He wants to be buried not in Egypt where he's at, but he wants to go back to the land of promise. The promise that God had given him. He said, you will be promised land, seed, and blessing. The promise to his father Isaac and his father Abraham. He wants to be buried back in the land of promise, the land of of Canaan that we see in Genesis 23 where Abraham goes and he buys this lot, this family cemetery for the people of God because this is where they would ultimately be. Abraham didn't see it. Jacob didn't see it. Isaac didn't see it. Joseph's not going to see it. But this first audience that they're writing to is going to see it. And so here's your point. When you come down here to 
verse 12 and 13, here's your point, your first point. This is a really important truth. It was an important truth to that first audience hearing these words. It is an important truth to you and to me. God's faithful servants come and go, but his promises endure. His promises endure so we can live in hope. This is what you see of Jacob at the end of his life when he is dying and he is blessing his sons. He is living and dying in hope. He's believing in the future promise, the enduring promise that God has promised them in land, in seed, and in blessing. And he believes that though he may die, that he will live. And then you come down and you see what Joseph does. Look at chapter 50, verses 12 and 13. Kids, pay attention. The father's dying wish was that he would be buried, not in Egypt, but back in the promised land. And so, verse 12. You know what he does? Functionally, he, he, he obeys what will be the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Thus the sons did for him, verse 12, chapter 50, the sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham brought in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. See, this first audience is about to go that's listening to these words. There's great encouragement here. See, these are heroes to these people. They know the stories passed down in oral tradition. They know the stories of Joseph and they know the stories of Jacob. And they view these men as their heroes. And they see in this text that Jacob, Israel, dies in faith, believing in the afterlife, believing that this future promise that he doesn't get to participate in will happen so much so that he's buried, he's buried back in the land. And not only does that have significance of hit to his faith, it also encourages this first audience. It encourages them to realize that, hey, you're about to take this land where we're buried, and this is going to happen because God's promises endure, and they are sure. What a great picture of hope and faith that Jacob exhibits at the end of his life. Jacob surely wasn't a perfect man. You can go back and look at his story And he struggled and struggled and he clung to the things of this world. But here in death, he is hoping in this future promise. It's interesting, isn't it, how God uses things, how God uses instruments or markers. See, this grave in the promised land is a marker of hope for future generations of Israel. You know, there's a marker for you and me as well. It's an empty grave. It's an empty grave where Jesus rose from. It's a marker of hope for you and for me. See, what's your response? What's my response to the empty tomb? What is your hope in life? What is your hope in death? Are you living in view of a future hope that is waiting for you? Are you waiting for this future hope with hope or with fear? First Peter has a great promise for you and for me. If you know Jesus, this is a glorious promise. Open your Bible, underline it, mark it up, print it out. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. What a great promise that we have as believers in Christ and the promise of Christ in 1 Peter 1. Look at it with me. These are a people who were going through persecution. And Peter begins in this way, and he says, verse 3, look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven from the future for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. And look at verse 13. Therefore, because of this great inheritance that you and I have, look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. So here's how we live. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is that we have an inherited promise as followers of Jesus that ought to motivate us and infuse us to set our hope on this future reward that we have like Jacob did. So we live to the Lord. We die to the Lord. Christ is our hope in life and in death. Amen. New City Catechism, if you don't have it, you ought to get it for your kids and walk through it. It's a question and answer. It says, what is our only hope in life and in death? And the answer is, we are not our own, but we belong to God. So we live to the Lord. We die to the Lord. Christ is our hope. C3 and life and death. So God's promises certainly outlive Jacob. They will outlive us, likely, before Jesus returns. But bringing hope and life and death how, does jo- how do Joseph's brothers, here's the next question, so Jacob dies, how do Joseph's brothers, who sold their brother into slavery, how do they respond to their father's death, knowing that Joseph has all the power in Egypt? Look at verse 15 through 21. 15 through 21. Let me read it, and you look along. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of of the God of your father. Joseph wept. He wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today because of the famine. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Why are they worried? Here's what the guilt of sin does to us. Sin is hard to get over. Have you ever been there like the brothers who sinned against their brother? Sin and the guilt of sin is often hard to get over. He's already forgiven them. And they come back when their father dies in fear saying, well, maybe he's going to take it back. Maybe he's going to repay us what we deserve. See, the guilt of sin is hard to get over. It's hard to live forgiven. You ever been there? When you do something that's sinful and wrong towards someone you love, it's hard to get over. You keep coming back and asking for forgiveness again and again. And Joseph is going to give them three assurances. Did you catch them? Three assurances of pardon. Three assurances of pardon. Look at it with me in verse 19. Look back at verse 19. His brothers also came down, bowed before him. Do not fear, am I in the place of God? What is Joseph's perspective on judgment? Judgment is the Lord's. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He knows it's not his place, that it's God's tribunal. Whatever people do to me or people do to you, 
Vengeance is the Lord. It's, it's the Lord. It's not ours. My grandfather owned a waterworks company, Brady, Texas, back in like 40s and 50s. And my dad tells me this story. It was a successful company. And my dad, when he was in high school, would work for his dad. And he said, I remember the day. I remember the day in which he found out the, the guy from Eden, which is a little town on 87, a little further out towards San Angelo. And it's not, this guy from Eden was maybe post-Eden world here. But he swindled him out of all this money, and it was going to bankrupt my grandfather. And back in the day, West Texas man handled things a little bit differently, and so he got in his pickup truck, and my grandmother saw him get in his pickup truck with a certain object. And he took the truck, and he left, and Grandma called the the pastor, and said, you need, and he lived on that side, on the west side of town. The pastor lives on the west side of town. He said, you've got to cut Raymond off. He's going to do something really awful because this guy swindled him out of money and the pastor stopped him in his truck and prayed with him and talked with him and reminded him that vengeance is the Lord's. And you know what happened? He lost, he still lost his company. He still lost this waterworks company that he'd worked all his life to build. And yet he didn't take vengeance out on this man. It would have completely wrecked his life. He knew, like Joseph, understood that it wasn't his place, that it was God's place, that God was the judge and God had pardoned them. I wonder what that looks like in your life. When somebody wrongs you and you want to take vengeance out on them. So that's the first thing, the first assurance that he tells his guilty brothers that he's forgiven. It's not my place. Vengeance is the Lord. He's the judge. And the second thing is this, if you look at verse 20, and this is the famous line, right, that we all know from the book of Genesis. Verse 20, what you meant, meant evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it, not allowed it, but meant it for good. See, he understands that his ways aren't God's ways. He understands that God's plans are way bigger than his plans. He understands that God's providence overrules. He not only rules, but he overrules even the evil in the world. What you intended or meant for evil, God meant for good. That's a great perspective that Joseph has and it allows him to forgive his brothers. It allows him to see that. This is a hard truth. The idea of God being sovereign over even evil. And how does that all work? And there's a lot of things that we need to understand about God's sovereignty and how it relates to the evil in the world. Martin Luther said it this way. He said in The Bondage of the Will, which is a great old book that you ought to read. You've got to read dead people. They think deep, deeper and harder. Before social media, they had a lot of time to think about these things. When God works in and by evil men, God does work by, in and by evil men. Evil deeds result, yet God cannot act evilly himself. For he is good and can do and can't do evil, but... Listen to this. He uses evil instruments. God is sovereign even over evil as he works in and through evil agents. Here's the way we typically think about God being good and sovereign and evil. What we try to do, and it's right that we do this, we separate, in this way, we separate God from evil. And we do that because God is perfect and he's holy and he's pure. And the Bible says that God doesn't tempt any man to evil, that he doesn't participate in evil. And so it's right and good that we separate God, a perfect, holy God, good God, from evil. 
and the evil agents and evil things that happen in the world. That is a good thing, but here's what happens. We so separate them that we don't understand the right relationship that there is between God and evil. And so instead of looking at it like this, we really need to look at it like this. If God is sovereign, meaning that he is in control of all things, he's providential, he works all things to the counsel of his will. You know what that means? If evil does exist, which it does, then God purposes it, and he weaves it, and he uses it. And I have to be careful in the the words that I use here. But he can use it, that he can wield it for his own glory and our own good. And so a right view of God's sovereignty, of God and evil, is God is sovereign over evil. And he can use it, and he can wield it for his own purposes and our good. And that's exactly what happens in the story of Joseph. You can't not see it. You can't just look at it and say, well, he allowed it, it happened, but it's completely separate. See, evil is under God's sovereign control and his sovereignty. And this is, you see this all the way through the Old Testament. You see it in Joseph. His brothers meant it for evil. They put him in a pit for dead on purpose. That's evil. And yet God uses this whole situation and he causes good. You're going to see it in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, guess what? The Bible also said that God hardened his heart. Work that out. Okay, so God uses it, and he weaves it, as Luther would say. And this is really important, not only as you look at this story of Joseph and his brothers, it's important as you look at the rest of Scripture. Listen, when you think about the cross, this is hard to understand, but when you think about the cross, you've got to come to face and to grips with this. Because evil men took God's son, his perfect son, and put him on a cross. That is evil. And yet the apostle Peter in Acts, not not me, Peter said this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, these men did evil. They put Jesus on a cross, and yet this is the predetermined plan of God. The foreordained plan of God. This is what God had purposed. And why did he do that? To take away the wrath, his wrath, that's on you and me to offer forgiveness for you and me and to make us right with him. See, the cross is a great picture of God sovereignly working. Man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so God uses the worst evil of human history to be a blessing to you, that you might have forgiveness of sin, that you can know God through the worst event that's ever happened on planet Earth. And that is a great comfort when you are going through trials and tribulations that you can't understand that God is weaving all things to the counsel of his will. So, you think about life and you think about the the curveballs that life throws you in 2020 and the lack of control you have and the hurts that you have from other people or situations that you don't understand. You need to know that God And his sovereignty is an anchor for your soul. We talked about that last week. It's an anchor to know that, okay, I don't understand this, but I know you're in control. It's a way worse thought to think that God is not in control and evil is out there on the loose and you don't know what's going to happen next. No, God is in control. And this is a great assurance to you and to me. And this is the the next point that we'll get to. So back to the story. I went off on a little thing right there. Coming back. So what assurances does he have? God, this is, I'm not in God's place, Joseph. Joseph's not in God's place. Vengeance is the Lord. That's the first assurance to his brothers. It would have been a good one. 
that God is sovereign even over what you did to me. It's not good, it's still evil, but God purposed it for good. That's the second thing. And look at verse 21. This is glorious. Verse 21, it says this. So don't fear. And he's already done this before. If you, if you caught it in chapter 45, he's, done the, he's already forgiven them and he's given them all these blessings. He's brought them to the land of Egypt and Goshen and all these areas where they can take their herds and um, their family and be provided for. But look at it. So don't fear. You know what he doesn't do here? He doesn't say, I already told you. I've forgiven you. <laughs> I already told you I'm going to provide for you. Just trust me. He tells them again, I will provide for you and your little ones. I will provide for you. And he comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. This is assurance. And you know, this is what God does with you and me. When we come to Christ, he doesn't just remove the guilt of your sin and say, okay, you're good. You know, you're not guilty anymore. You know what God does with us? He brings us into his family. He brings us to his table. And we were once enemies and we once meant evil and now he's brought us to his table. This is the grace of God. And the Bible says that we're adopted sons and daughters of the king. And he gives us blessing and assurance that we don't deserve any more than these brothers deserve from Joseph. But this is the beauty of the gospel. That he takes people far off and he brings them near and he not just says, hey, you're not guilty anymore, you're okay, he brings them near and he loves you and he cares for you and he blesses you like Joseph did for his brothers. That's the beauty of the gospel, do you know it? Well, how do you do with guilt from sin, previous sin? Do you live forgiven as God has made you forgiven? And when others sin come back and back to your mind, how do you treat that? When you've forgiven someone, how do you treat it? You treat it like Joseph when he continues to be kind to them and compassionate to them. Great lessons for us to remember. So God's plans, here's your point. It's a big one. God's plans can't be thwarted. They can't be thwarted by man's sinful actions. So live with assurance, C3. God's purposes can't be thwarted. By the things that happen, by the sinful things that happen, if he said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Lansing blessings going to happen. He's going to save his people Israel. It's going to happen. So you can live with assurance. Assurance of pardon. Assurance that he's going to judge. Assurance that all the circumstances of your life that you don't understand are good under his sovereign care. Well, look at verse 22 through 26. And we come to our last point here. As we look at the death, kind of sandwiched between the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph, so at the end of Genesis 50, you see the death of Joseph. And here's your point. Your last point is that God always has a purpose. And he always has meaning in our circumstances, particularly suffering. So we can live by faith. I want you to see the faith of Joseph in this text. So when Joseph's brothers saw, verse 15, so when Joseph's brothers saw that their father had, was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us. Excuse me, I just read that. I need more coffee. Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. 110 years in Egyptian culture, that's where he's at, is like the number of perfection. That's like the perfect life. Not too much, not too little, 110 years. 
That sounds pretty rough, actually. The older I get, that's a long one. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Mater, the son of Manasseh, who counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers and his sons, I am about to die. Look at the continuity between Jacob and him and the way that they die. I'm about to die, but God will care for you or visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely care for you, visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here back to the promised land. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, they're in Egypt, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the primary lesson, I think, of the life of Joseph, is that God always has purpose There's always meaning, even in our light momentary affliction, as the New Testament would say, in our circumstances, in our suffering, so we can live by faith. This is what you see him doing with, when he dies, look at, back at verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you, bring you out of the land, he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is he recalling? He's recalling the promise, the Abrahamic promise, back from Genesis 15, that he promised Abraham, and then he gave to Isaac, and he gave to Jacob, and Jacob gave to his sons. And so he's dying in faith. He's dying remembering the promise, that the promise would endure so there's hope, that God's plans can't be thwarted so they can rest assured, even in hard circumstances, that they can live by faith. It's interesting when you come to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, it's the hall of fame of faith, and so they recount for New Testament believers in the first century all these men and women of faith who trusted God through all kinds of circumstances, right? That's Hebrews 11. It's really interesting when you come to Hebrews 11 and they talk about Joseph, and they talk about Joseph's faith. You know, there's a lot there (laughs) that you could say. You could talk about how he had faith when he was delivered down to Egypt by his brothers and he still worked hard and he still was faithful and he was still faithful to his God when he had a dream and interpreted it you could talk about that all day you could talk about his forgiveness of his brothers of his dirtbag brothers who don't deserve it but he forgave them seeing the bigger picture I read that text and go I don't have that kind of faith I want vengeance I don't want to bring them to Egypt. I don't want to give them my provisions. Look at what they've done to me. That's great faith in God's plan and God's purposes that Joseph had, but he doesn't go there. The author of Hebrews doesn't talk about any of those things. He talks about his death. I think we have it here. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The idea of making mention of the exodus. Now think about where we're at. Joseph hasn't gone through the exodus, but the people who he's writing to who are hearing this message for the first time, the book of Genesis, they're about to, they've already gone through, those people have already gone through the exodus. They've already gone through the suffering in Egypt and they've been delivered and God has delivered them. And then they're bickering and they go through 40 years in the wilderness. And so they're still a little fearful about going into the land because there's Canaanites there and there's people who possess the land. And look at what Jacob has said. Hey, I believe in the future promise. I'm going to be buried there. There's a marker. Joseph comes along and says, listen, believe in the promise. Believe by faith that God's going to deliver you. They've experienced it. 
They've experienced the deliverance out of Egypt. And so these are great words of encouragement. So not only does Joseph die in faith, but he dies giving encouragement to the next generation. Do you see it? That they can take the promised land. They've already gone through this. And Joseph hadn't even seen it, and they have. Man, what a great truth that we can live by faith no matter what the circumstance. It was a great truth for the first audience. It's a great truth from us. If there's ever a guy who could, who in his own mind at least could have punted on God, if there's ever a guy who could have punted on God and said, you know what, I've been faithful to you. I've forgiven people. I've done all this and yet there's still trouble in my life. It would have been Joseph, but he doesn't do that. He lives in faith and he dies in faith. Man, that's the hope that I hope that I'm remembered by. It's a way that I would like to die trusting and also passing the baton to the next generation to to say to my kids, to say to the next generation, live by faith, it's worth it. God is who he says he is, it's worth it. Flourish under his loving rule rather than taking matters into your own hands. So let me ask you, C3, how are you encouraging the next generation, maybe your children, to live by faith? How are you modeling it? How are you teaching them to trust their God even through the hardest of their circumstances that they're going through? You know, I would wake up almost every morning as a kid and my bed um, faced the hallway and my head faced the hallway and about 4.30 a.m., almost every weekday at least, the light was on in the bathroom because my mom had her Bible and her prayer journal. And she was reading her Bible and spending time with God. So how are you encouraging your children to live by faith? How are you modeling it? How are you teaching them to trust C3? So we have hope. We have hope in God's enduring promises in the life of Jacob. We look at Joseph and we can learn that there's assurance that comes from God's unwavering plans and we can believe always that there's meaning even in our most difficult of days through the life of Joseph. See, Genesis opens, it's interesting, let me close with this. Genesis opens with a couple in paradise and it closes with a coffined body in Egypt. How's that for a Christmas downer? See, they're really still not learned who's at the steering wheel, have they? But, but, there's still hope. There's still hope in the one that would come and crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3. There's still one from Genesis 12 who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth that would come in Christ. There's still the lion of the tribe of Judah that would come, Genesis 49. And so they had hope in Messiah who would come and bring light to the life of men. And next week we'll see his coming. We'll have a Christmas celebration. But your takeaway for today is this. Let God be God. Let God be God in life and in death. In life, letting God be God helps you forgive people you really don't want to. People that you really want to take vengeance out on. Let God be God in life. Allows you to live in peace and not fear. Knowing who's really in control. It allows you to be generous like Joseph was to his brothers. Rather than stingy. 
It helps you conclude, like Joseph did, what others meant for evil, God meant for good. So let God be God in life, but let God be God in death. Do you see how Joseph and Jacob, even on their deathbed, they were an encouragement to the next generation to hope in the promise to come, to live by faith that God was who he says he was, to die with less regrets, to die in the sure hope of Jesus' coming. And you see that in the place where Jake, or Joseph says in two places, he will surely take care of his own. C3, he will surely take care of you. Let God be God in life and in death. Let me pray. Father, we... There are countless things in our life that we need to trust you with. In our circumstances, you give us hope, you give us assurance, you give us faith. Those are gifts from your hand. So Lord, I pray that we can trust your plans, that we can trust in your plans, that we can have assurance in your purposes, that we can hope in your promises. Teach us through your spirit to trust you. Teach us through your spirit that the the only place that we can be satisfied is under your loving, sovereign rule. We love you. We thank you for the book of Genesis that has taught us so much about who you are and how we ought to live in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.